Again, if you haven't gotten a handout, please raise your hand and the ushers will make sure you get a handout for today's class. We continue this morning in our survey of uh, the Old Testament and continuing now with the uh, minor prophets. We come this morning to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, I'm tempted just to read the entire book, but we'll just read it chapter by chapter as we come to the various sections. Note with me, first of all, chapter 1 and verse 1, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet beheld. And chapter 3 and verse 1, the, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. So when we come to look at the setting of the book of Habakkuk, like many of the other minor prophets or some of the other minor prophets, it's somewhat difficult to know exactly all of the, the pieces and the exact setting of it. When we come to ask the question, who wrote the book? Well, the book tells us very plainly it was Habakkuk the prophet. And while some uh, say that the third chapter was added on later uh, because it has such a different flavor than the first two chapters, the fact of the matter is the, the writer tells us that the same person did the last chapter that did the first two chapters. And in fact, it fits quite well together. There's no reason to, to really break it apart. Um, I don't know about you, but I've written letters that uh, have some parts in them that are a little more direct and others which are a little more uh, poetic. Uh, random, I'm using the word very generically there. Uh, but the fact of the matter is they, they can change in tone because of the, the material I'm addressing. And so it, it's, it's very appropriate that there would be this change. There's nothing to indicate that it should be anybody else. There's no other information in the book about Habakkuk, where he came from, who his parents, parents are, what tribe he's a part of. There's no references to him outside of this uh, part of the scripture. And, and the name is an interesting name because the name does not have any reference to Yahweh or Elohim. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's thought that this was probably written at a time when, or he was named at a time in which uh, Babylonian or Assyrian names were more popular because there is a, an Assyrian word or an Akkadian word that could, very, could possibly be the root for his name. But we really don't know what the name means or where it comes from. It is possible that he is a Levite in light of the fact that he writes something that he considers that is considered a hymn to be sung, the very last sentence in the entire book, chapter 3, verse 19, the last sentence that this is written for the choir director on my stringed instruments. And so if it's written for the choir director on stringed instruments, that's a phrase used in the Psalms uh, to indicate something which is for corporate worship. And so uh, it would possibly be that he was a Levite and he wrote uh, from that standpoint. But there's nothing else to indicate that he necessarily is. So when was Habakkuk written then? Well, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 6, it's a clearly uh, in a time in which the Babylonian Empire, or the Chaldeans as they're called here, are on the rise. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who walks on the breadth of the land to possess dwelling places which are not theirs. And so God says, I'm calling these Chaldeans who are out there doing some pretty uh, interesting things. Uh, interesting is a very understated word. In verse 17 of chapter 1, 
speaking again of these Chaldeans, will they therefore empty their net and continually kill nations without sparing? Habakkuk is clearly aware of the fact that these uh, Chaldeans, these Babylonians are active and they're active in a very wicked way. Uh, and so he's aware of, of that. And then he's going to be told by God uh, about the, uh, informed by God about some other activities that they're engaged in. Notice with me uh, chapter 6 and verse 10. Or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 10. <laughs> I just wrote several other chapters of Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 10. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who walks on the breadth of the land to possess dwelling places which are not theirs. They're already out there doing some of these things. And they mock at kings, verse 10. And rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up dirt and capture it. And so they're, they're very active in, in the land and, they're, and they are uh, continuing to conquer. Well, as we look at the history, as we remember the history of the Old Testament, remember the Babylonian Empire followed the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is obviously now on its way out and the Babylonians are on their way in. It could be that the Assyrians are completely gone because there's no reference to the Assyrians. And there's no reference to the Northern Kingdom. And so the northern kingdom is most likely already been taken captive. Uh, and so uh, they're, on, they're gone. And if you notice, even in, chap in chapter 2, verse 17, Lebanon has been uh, captured. The violence done to Lebanon will cover you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of the human bloodshed. So God's recognizing or stating that, that they, Lebanon's already been conquered. So we, we read then, uh, we put all these pieces together. It's clearly that it's clear from at least one man put it this way, that Habakkuk lived through the Babylonian resurgence at the end of the 6th century BC. So when they were coming along, this is when Habakkuk was ministering. Jerusalem has not yet been invaded uh, because the temple is still there in chapter 2 and verse 20. We have the words uh, that he sits in his holy temple. Well, that could be speaking of heaven, but that's phraseology used oftentimes to speak of the temple there in Jerusalem. And the fact that he wrote a hymn, as we saw in chapter 3 and verse 19, that he wrote a hymn to be sung for the choir director indicates that the, he still considers corporate worship to be something which is taking place. But once the, the temple was gone, there was no corporate worship at that time. So it's before the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, which was uh, 587 BC, and it was a threefold uh, invasion of Jerusalem uh, leading up to that. So it's very likely that he, he lived during the time of Manasseh or the time of Jehoiakim. Now, there's one other point, one other piece to, to put together as we think of this uh, time in which he was writing. It's a time when sin is abounding among the people of Judah. And that's plain from the very opening words in chapter 1, in verses 2 through 4. How long, O Yahweh, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see wickedness and cause me to look on trouble? Indeed, devastation and violence are before me, and there is strife and contention is lifted up. Therefore, the law is ignored, and justice never comes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes before 
comes forth perverted. So he's talking about a time in which there's a lot of wickedness there in, uh, in Israel or in Judah at this point in time in the southern kingdom. And so therefore, it's either in Manasseh's reign, which was predominantly a wicked reign, except for the last part of his reign, or it's in the first part of Jehoiakim's reign, which was also a wicked reign. In between, there was this time of, of Josiah's reign, in which there's a reformation, but there's no reference to anything of the, of the, that would say this is evidence that there was a reformation, that there was anything good going on. And so uh, probably I, I would uh, think, I think it's mo most likely during the reign of Jehoiakim, Josiah has had his time of, of uh, leading the people back and the time of reformation. And now that is gone and Babylon is on the border ready uh, to take Judah. So this would make him then a contemporary of Jeremiah. And there are, there are elements of Habakkuk's prophecy, which fit very well with some of the prophecies of Jeremiah. So there's the setting of, of the book. But the, the, I think the most interesting thing about the book, and this is one of the things I thought about doing, let me just read the whole book and then ask you, what do you see that's interesting uh, in, in this particular book? And there's several things that jump out uh, from the book. And one of them is the, the various genre. Now, don't get all, all worried that, I, that I'm going literary on you. This is just, is just a word to talk about different forms of literature. We all know about genre because when you pick up a newspaper, if you ever were to read a newspaper, you would read it differently than you would have read the comic pages or the sports page, right? It's just a different genre. It's written in a different form for a different purpose. And, and so uh, the book of Habakkuk has a number of these different genres. It's, it's something of a drama uh, with just two actors. Uh, Some time back, I, I went into the city with one of my daughters for a, a, a uh, high school uh, gathering, and we went to one of the plays. It was the play of uh, uh, the, uh, Freud's last meeting, and, he, and the, the whole play is about C.S. Lewis meeting Sigmund Freud. And there's just two actors, and there's just one scene, and nothing changes. They just sit there for the whole time in this one scene in these two actors. Now, the, the flavor changes as the whole thing unfolds, and you hear these conversations taking place. One minute they're talking like they're friends, the next minute they're talking like they're adversaries, the next minute they're talking like they're, they're same citizens. And so it was back and forth. That's kind of what Habakkuk is like. There's, there's these two actors. There's the prophet and there's God. And they're interacting. The whole book is really, apart from uh, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, and the last sentence of chapter 3, verse 19, it's, it's all prayer. It's all conversation. But the first two chapters are particularly conversation. Where, where the prophet speaks, asks some questions, and God answers those questions. There's also something of the flavor of a lament, because there's a lot of woe in chapter 2. And there's also uh, the, the questions in chapter 1. How long, O Lord? There's also a taunt song. Uh, it's a proverb or a riddle that is given. The word literally is proverb, or could be translated that way. But it's a proverb or a riddle that's given to taunt the Babylonians, these Chaldeans. And it's similar. If you notice chapter 2, uh, we'll see several places where this word woe appears. It appears for the first time in, ch in chapter 2, verse 6 in the middle. Woe to him who increases what is not his. For how long 
and, and makes rich with loans. And so you have this, this activity, these woes that come on. And this is not just a, and this taunt that's taking place. There's a couple of places in the Old Testament. You don't need to turn there. You can do that if you want. I think you have the references there in your, script, in your notes. If you don't, you can write them down. But in Isaiah 14, in verse 4, uh, the word uh, translated proverb is used as well to speak of a taunt. It says that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. You were so great, but where are you now? Or Jeremiah 24 and verse 9, Jeremiah 24, 9. I will make them a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth as a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I will scatter them. Four different words used to talk about this same kind of language. Reproach, proverb, taunt, and curse. To speak about how somebody will be... Uh, looked upon with ridicule after a time uh, of uh, supposed greatness. Of course, in chapter 3, in verse 1, we have there's, this, uh, there's a prayer. Uh, it's called a shigi, uh, shigionoth, or according to shigionoth, which can also be viewed from not only as a prayer, as it's called in verse 1, but as a hymn, as it's described in verse 19. So it's a prayer that was turned into a hymn. We have those in our hymn book, right? Where we, we sing prayers back to God for the, for the giving of the Spirit or, or praise being given to our, to our God. So one man trying to put all these things together says this. Habakkuk laments the sins of his era. And he receives, though we are not told how, a divine assurance and the advent of the Babylonian armies is God's doing, presumably, though this is nowhere stated, as a judgment on Judah. And so there's a, a judgment that's, that's stated. And that God would not countenance their wickedness. In chapter 2 and verses 2 through 4, God replies that the righteous will be preserved because of their faithfulness. Then follow five oracles of woe, like Isaiah chapter 5, directed against the Babylonian greed, violence, idolatry, and language derived in part from other Hebrew texts. So, and a psalm follows in the end, introduced uh, by an editorial gloss, a statement there at the chapter 3, verse 1 in which Yahweh's might and glory are celebrated. And so he says, you've got all these different things that are all put together to make uh, the particular point that this prophecy is designed to make. But then as we, and looking still at this, uh, its format and structure, I've mentioned something about the, the genre, but I want to look a little more particularly at this dialogue, uh, this conversational flavor that takes place. The prophet begins the conversation by asking a question. He asks God a, a, a question. He's looking around at the world and he says, How long, O Yahweh, will I call for your help and you will not hear? He's going to ask some other questions. And, God's, and then in, in chapter 1, verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? And so there's these questions that he puts to God and, and God responds. Uh, God answers those questions, and the first, first answer comes in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, and the next answer comes in, in chapter, uh, chapter 2, 
when he's standing, and, and there it actually says in chapter 2 and verse 2, then Yahweh answered me and said. And so there's actually some way in which God actually speaks to the prophet. And so we have this crisis of faith, as it's called by a number of different men, a crisis of faith that's unfolding, and the prophet is wrestling with God uh, over the, some matters that are, that are troubling him. And I agree with what one man said, that Habakkuk is a godly man, but he's experiencing some things very privately. He's experiencing some things privately, and yet he's told he's supposed to write these things down. And so he's wrestling. I think the best word for describing the book of Habakkuk, in my estimation, is the word wrestling. He is wrestling from one state of faith to a different state, to an, a, a more mature state of faith. But that doesn't mean that this book is only for uh, the, the people, for Habakkuk. We'll come back to that in a minute, but in chapter 3 and verse 13, there's the one clear statement where he speaks of others. He says, you went forth for the salvation of your people. And so he clearly brings in uh, God's people at that point in, in time, thinking about the fact that God's at work, not just in his life, but in the life of Israel, or Judah, really. The third thing we note about the, the structure is that it's divine revelation. Divine revelation. And the first thing is, again, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, it's called an oracle, which is a word that means burden. It's a prophetic burden, a weight, a heaviness that he has to carry. And when you read through the book, you realize this is really heavy. This is no light thing that he has to say. It's kind of like the, the word that Samuel was given and that first prophetic word that he was given to have to speak against Eli and what God was going to do to Eli and to his, his family line. And that's that prophetic burden. What a, what a burden for a young man to have to go to his, the, the priest and have to say to him, uh, you know, God's going to judge you. Well, this is, uh, is a very much a burden. As I said in chapter 2 and verse 2, we see that there are parts of this that are the very words of God. Yahweh answered and said. But it's also very interesting that <clears throat> somehow... The prophet saw these things. Notice it says in, in verse 1 of chapter 1, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet beheld. And then in chapter 2, he is shown a vision, a vision which he is supposed to write down. And so it's revelation which is given to him, which he is to write down because it's supposed to be preserved for others. Another F, F emphasis or indication that it's for people beyond just the prophet But it's, it's, it's an absolutely certain word, and it's one of those things that we need to get into our own minds and hearts, that when we come to the Word of God, it is this certain, always. Write down the vision and write it on tablets distinctly, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It pants toward its end, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come it will not delay. It will certainly come. God's word is certain. And so in summary, we have a text which is very creative, rather unusual, a conversational, wrestlings, but we have a prophetic book, a book of divine revelation given 
for the people of God in the time of Habakkuk and for the people of God of all ages. That brings me then to some of the themes and the subjects. And as, as I usually do, the historical purposes, it was to warn uh, the, the people of coming judgment. Uh, these prophecies are, are not just given to say, oh, this is what's going to happen, but it's always with that pressure behind it, though it's not mentioned anywhere in the book because he doesn't speak to the people at all. But the goal of these kinds of revelation are that people would hear them and repent, be delivered. This book also, though, in a historical sense, gives us, a, gives us insight into the life of a, of a prophet. Prophets were not mere typewriters. They, well, they weren't mere word processors. They, they, they weren't, um, you know, voice-to-text messages. It wasn't like God dictated these words and it just started coming out of the prophet. The prophet here actually has to wrestle with God over some issues. He's really struggling in his soul with what's going on, and he's, he's told later to write things down. And I think that writing has more than just the, what's going to come in chapter 2, but I think it's all that is, we, we find in the book of Habakkuk is the result of, of uh, the prophet obeying that command. Prophets had wrestling matches. They, they had burdens. They had difficulties with the things that they had to do. And yet, being inspired by God and upheld by God, they fulfilled the mission that they were given. And we see something of that here. But then there's the doctrinal and ethical purposes. This is some amazing teaching about God in, in this uh, particular book. The name Yahweh is used throughout chapter 1, verse 12. Yahweh, my God, my Holy One, and as again, as he's looking around at sin, that title makes a, a whole lot of sense. He's saying, wait a minute, I'm talking to the one who's holy, set apart from all this sinfulness. He goes on and says in verse 12, Yahweh has, have, is appointed, have appointed them to judge, that is the Babylonians, and you, O rock, have established them to, to correct. And so he looks to God as his rock, He's Yahweh of hosts. He's the, he's the God who is the God of, of the armies. And then toward the end of, of the book, we've got some, some wonderful descriptions of, of him. He's again the Holy One, chapter 3, verse 3. But then notice with chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, when he comes to the close. Yet I will exult in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord Yahweh... Or Yahweh the Lord is my strength. So this is how he views God. A holy God. A righteous God. A God who is sovereign over all things. He's, he's, he's wrestling with, with this God because he knows him to be a God who cannot sin. He has eyes that are so pure. He cannot even look upon sin. Verse 13 of chapter 1. And so this is the God that he's, he's dealing with and wrestling with as he, as he looks around at the world around him. As one man put it, simply put, Habakkuk's message is theocentric. That is, is, that is it is God-centered. And there's a lesson just that in itself. As we look around at the world and we see all of the wickedness and one wicked generation taking over from another one, and we think this one's going to be a solution, and, and lo and behold, another one comes along. Or we think things are getting bad, and lo and behold, they get worse. And we're tempted to think, well, 
God, where are you? But God is still involved, still in control. As this man goes on to say, it's actually O. Palmer Robertson, a great commentary, a little bit more technical, but a great commentary on Habakkuk. God himself occupies his, or excuse me, God himself occupies Habakkuk's every thought and provides the framework by which Habakkuk perceives reality. He looks out and he says, God determines, defines reality for me. There's a lot of excellent teaching about God. But also some, some helpful teaching on, on the, as it portrays a man who's going through personal wrestlings, personal struggles, trying to live by faith in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a wicked world. He's wrestling with God over what God is doing. He does believe in God. It's clear from the very opening words. He does believe in Yahweh. But he can't square what he knows about God with what he sees. And that's where he's wrestling. Very much like the book of Job. Those wrestlings are saying, wait, wait a minute. How do these things fit together? How are we to understand this wicked world? And so there's a good deal about fear and faith. Violence and bloodshed and salvation. Sin and righteousness. Idolatry and the one true God. Shame and disgrace over against glory and honor. Habakkuk, in all of this, is an example to us in that at every point, he's praying. He's praying. He brings his questions to God. He listens to God's answers. He praises this God. But then again, I, I just want to highlight the fact that this, this book is, is, is for us and really was for all of God's people. Look with me at chapter 1 and verse 5. Chapter 1 and verse 5. All of the pronouns in this verse are second person plural. And so the commands are to you all, not just to Habakkuk. See you all. See, look at the nations, and look, y'all. Y'all be, and I sound like a West Southerner, but, but I guess I should say you guys, right? <laughs> you guys be astonished. You guys, you guys be astounded, because I am doing something in you days. Right? These are all plural. So he's, he's talking to a, a whole group of people. This is not just for Habakkuk as he wrestles. This is for all of God's people. And so as we read this book, we should come to it with a, with a desire to say, Lord, what, have you say, what are you saying to me? You wrote this down. You told the prophet to write this down. And it's been preserved by your spirit even to this day for us who are the ones who are to run, whether we're to be running in terms of running to do a work or running in fleeing. And chapter 3 is a chapter which should govern a lot about how we think about worship. We'll come to that when we get to chapter 3. Christological and soteriological purposes, there is no clear reference anywhere in this book to the Messiah. 
Habakkuk's prophecy, though, is one of the most influential in the entire Bible. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 4, we read, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Now, where have we heard that before? This is a real question. Where have we heard that before? Pastor Chansky, put your hand down. <laughs> the righteous shall live by his faith. Doug. Romans, right? Do you have the references there in your, in your notes? Romans 1, 17, right? The righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3, 11. Now that no... No one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. Or Hebrews 10, 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This verse in Habakkuk, this small little book in the Minor Prophets, is clearly not a minor influence on the truth of God. Matter of fact, as, as one man put it, it shaped the whole Reformation. But Christ is here, because he's there as we learn from the book of Romans, that he is the one who provides for us the righteousness of God so that we can be righteous before God. He is also the Holy One. We know, again, from the, from the New Testament, the, the one that Isaiah saw that was holy, 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 sitting upon his throne in the temple, Jesus tells us, or John tells us in John chapter 12, he saw Jesus sitting on the throne. So Jesus is the Holy One. So when we read those words, we can think of it that way. And, and I would just encourage you sometime to read the book of Habakkuk and try to put yourself in Jesus' sandals for a moment. And what would this have said to him as he read of God's judgment? as he read of the Holy One and the Righteous One and the God of our salvation, how that would have informed his own thinking as the God-man, the Messiah. And clearly, there's another Christological, eschatological, that is, Christ teach, teaching about Christ, teaching about end times, found in chapter 2 and verse 14, when it says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The Lord there is the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ. And I believe that that's an, an, an eschatological or talking about the end times that ultimately that will be fulfilled. Several notable passages uh, that, that you, you probably know these phrases. You've probably heard them. They're all here in Habakkuk. It's amazing how many phrases come out of Habakkuk that we know. Chapter 1 and verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Chapter 2 and verse 4, I've already made reference to the righteous shall live by faith. Chapter 2 and verse 14, I just mentioned the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. Chapter 2 and verse 20, speaking of the presence of God. But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Chapter 3 and verse 2, a prayer for revival. Revive your work in the midst of the years. Or this same one which says, in wrath, remember mercy, chapter 3 and verse 2. And chapter 3, 17 and 19, how many times have we 
been encouraged or challenged by these verses, I will exult in Yahweh, I will rejoice, or actually, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit upon the vine, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in Yahweh. We'll come to see something of the, the significance and the potency of that as we come now to look at the outline of the book itself. Follow along with me. Really two parts to the book, uh, chapters one and two and chapter three. The first chapter is the wrestlings of Habakkuk, his prayers for justice. His prayers for justice. And then chapter three, the resting of Habakkuk. If this is the wrestlings of Habakkuk, the ending is the wrestling, it says restings, it should say wrestlings of Habakkuk for chapters 1 and 2, and the restings of Habakkuk, a psalm of faith, or we could even say prayers for mercy. So we have the first discourse in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your copy of God's Word, uh, follow along as I read verses 1 through 11. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet beheld. How long, O Yahweh, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see wickedness, and cause me to look on trouble? Indeed, devastation and violence are before me, and there is strife and contention is lifted, and contention is lifted up. Therefore, the law is ignored, and justice never comes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes forth perverted." See among the nations, God responds, and look, be also astonished, be astounded, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if it was recounted to you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who walks on the breadth of the land and to possess dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and exaltation come forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and sharper than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward, and they gather captives like sand, and they mock at kings, and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at their fortress and heap up dirt and capture it. Then they will sweep through the land like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose power is their God. Here is the first discourse between the prophet Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk brings his question. It comes in two parts. Will you hear my plea? He asks, how long? And then he asks the question, why is there so much oppression and injustice all around me? He's looking at the people of Judah and he's seeing injustice and wickedness among the people of God. Injustice and wrongful suffering. Destruction and violence, strife and conflict. And a lot of these are legal terms or financial terms. People are being oppressed. The law is being paralyzed. Injustice prevails. The righteous are surrounded by the unjust and the wicked, and justice is being perverted. Does that not, in and of itself, tell us I need to listen to this book. 
Because that sounds like America. That sounds like the world in which we live. And here he's wrestling. What's he doing? He's coming to God with his requests. He's coming to God with his wrestlings. And basically, he could summarize it, his, his requests and his wrestlings, his questions this way. How long will you tolerate the oppression of the righteous? In verses 5 through 11, we have God's response. We don't know how he responded, but God now starts to speak. He says, you're looking too close. Pick up your eyes and look out, because I'm going to tell you the answer is coming. It's called the Chaldeans. You're thinking about national sins? I'm talking about international problems. But I'm going to bring them. And they're going to come with greater violence and greater corruption, and yet they are going to be my instrument for justice. Verse 6, God says, I will deal with sin severely with these Chaldeans. Verse 7, justice will be served because they are a law to themselves. God says, justice will be meted out swiftly, verse 8. Justice will be unavoidable and thorough, verses 9 through 11. Bottom line, God's words to, uh, to Habakkuk. No one's getting away with anything. I will judge sin even among my people. Then it brings us to the second discourse. Habakkuk's second question how can you use evil? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Whoa, I asked a question and I got an answer. Not what I wanted. Now listen to the answer. Verse 12 through chapter 2. We'll, we'll just read it piece, piece by piece. 12 to 17. Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Yahweh, have placed them to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them, speaking of the Chaldeans, to reprove. Your eyes are too pure to see evil, and you cannot look on trouble. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And you have made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them. The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook. They drag them away with their net, which was some of the practices they actually engaged in. Therefore... They are glad and rejoice. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things, their portion is rich and their food is fat. And, and they therefore empty their net and continually kill nations without sparing. We've got a liberal president. And so, Lord, give us somebody that's going to be better. Oh, I'll give you a child. Petulant child. Oh, well, I'll replace him with with another liberal. Oh, and I'll replace him with another liberal. Wait a minute, God. This isn't the way I thought this would work out. I wanted, I wanted justice. This doesn't look like justice. Do you see what I'm saying? This is the kind of thing that the prophet's wrestling with. I'm not seeing justice here. I'm seeing a more wicked nation come in, and you're helping them. You're using them. Now, remember, he knows God. And the words that he uses in verses 12 and 13 are words drawn from the promises made to Abraham, Israel, and David. When he says to Abram that he would be a, a nation that would be great. In Deuteronomy 32.4, Moses writes one of his hymns, The Rock, whose his work is perfect. And he uses that phrase, The Rock. So he's... 
He's, he's looking at these promises and he's saying, wait a minute, I, I, I don't see how this fits together. It doesn't fit in with my knowledge. Are you now, verse 17, basically it could be summarized this way. Are you now supporting idolatry? But God now speaks. Well, after Habakkuk takes his stand, and there's a whole bunch we could, we could many, many sermons preached on chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the fortification, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And it can either read how I may respond when I am reproved or how I should respond. Another translation of, of, uh, is, is how I will answer back after I hear the answer. I, I think that the reality here, I think he's standing there in faith saying, you know, when you correct me, because I've been so bold, I, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm waiting to see what you're going to do, but I'm here to be reproved. And a great posture. But God's word, he says, God comes and says, God's word is certain. God provides a vision to answer Habakkuk's questions, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Let's read that. I will stand on my guard post. I read that chapter 2, verse 2. Then Yahweh answered and said to me, write down the vision and write it on tablets distinctly, that the one who has read it may run, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It pants toward its end, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. It will, be, it will certainly come. It will not delay. God's response begins this way. I'm going to show you a vision. And it is a vision which is to be preserved and promoted because people need to know what I'm going to say to you. It is a vision that is certain and infallible. It cannot be wrong and it will come to pass. And it is a vision which will happen at the appointed time, at God's appointed time. It's time stamped. And that when that time comes, it will come to pass. In verses 4 and 5, he moves on to talk about two ways in the world. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. And indeed, wine betrays excuse me, the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like, a, like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and assembles to himself all peoples. And so it basically describes two different ways in this world. There's the righteous who are humble before God and live by faith. And there's the proud one, the one who is puffed up. And he's going to go on to say this one lives in woe. He's going to have five woes then, the song of woes. I won't read through the song of woes. Follow along with me just so you can kind of scan down as I give these headings. In verses, the first woe comes in verses 6 through 8. And the victims of, of Babylon's uh, attacks, the victims of extortion, if you will, will get revenge. Now this is possibly referring to the, the forced tribute that Babylon would have required of nations that they conquered. You've been requiring tribute from them. Well, they're going to rise up and they're going to call their loans. They're going to call the payment. In other words, Babylon will be live, is living on borrowed time. Verses 9 through 11. The crimes that they've committed will come back to haunt them. The bloodshed, the violence. They will be recalled. The very walls themselves, as it were, will speak out. And all the security that you have made in your money and your might is very flimsy. You have nothing, he says, he said, you, you have nothing to look forward to but shame. 
Verses 12 to 14. Crime never pays. Your life is out of your hands. It's not in your hands, Babylon, to do what you want to do. God is controlling all these things. And in verses 15 to 17, they glory in their shame. And in the end, all they have is shame. They serve up drunkenness, but God's going to put a cup to their lips. And it's going to be the cup of his wrath, the cup of destruction. They will have nothing left but shame that remains. And the last woe. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The idiocy of idolatry. Be silent before Yahweh as your idols are silent before you. Your idols are vain. I am the one before whom you should humble yourself. In preaching through Habakkuk back in 2014, 2015, I entitled my sermon on these woes, Song of Woe to Cheer Your Hearts. Because these woes were given to Habakkuk to tell Habakkuk, I'm going to deal with Babylon. They aren't getting away with their greater sin. I'll deal with them. And that's to encourage Habakkuk in the midst of the coming onslaught. But then chapter 3, the resting of Habakkuk, a psalm of faith, some cries for mercy. Shigionoth is a word which could mean, uh, uh, come from the word stumbling, which could mean that Habakkuk is saying, I'm one who stumbles and I, and I, and I'm, I want you to sing this to, to help you not stumble. Um, or it could mean stumbling to the point of staggering. Uh, I've heard it described as a word which talks about intense emotion. The emotion so intense that you're, you're actually staggering under the weight of it. And that could be the way that this, that's the tune you're supposed to use or something along those lines. But there's no clear indication, that I, a definitive indication that I could give what the meaning is. But after telling us that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, we read in verse 2, O Yahweh... I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Yahweh, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In rage, remember compassion, in the translation I'm using, or in wrath, remember mercy. Um, another great little commentary on the book of Habakkuk is Martin Lloyd-Jones's commentary. Uh, I don't like the title because it says, the title is From Fear to Faith. I don't think that rightly describes Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a man of faith at the beginning, but it's a wrestling faith, and a man of fear at the end. <laughs> Fearing faith, a faith that fears God. And so, so the fact of the matter is he's a man who has faith all the way through, and, yet, and that's part of what makes it so difficult because he's got his eyes set on God and he's trying to, kind of like Psalm 73, right? Trying to coordinate what I see with what I know and what I believe to be true. And so now he comes to the end and he says, it's all going to come to this, Lord. I've heard the report of you and I fear. And I plead with you that you would revive your work. That you would come 
And in the midst of your judgment, that you would bring mercy. So here he's changed from praying for justice. That's what those first two chapters are about. To now praying for mercy. The climax is found in verses 16 and 19. But in verses 3 to 15, the heart of this, uh, this hymn and psalm is God's frightening action. In verses 3 through 6, we have a theophany described, a, a presentation of God, a glorious presentation of God. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His brightness is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the, and there is the hiding of his strength. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and measured out the earth. He stood and startled the nations. So the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. Remember what he said at the beginning. You're everlasting, aren't you? I mean, isn't this the God I'm talking to? And he says, now he says, yes, you are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan under wickedness and the tents of Ten curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. He sees this glorious display of God's coming. And God is coming in judgment. And, he, and, 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 it, just, and it fills him with this, wait a minute, I, this is the view I have. I have to keep this view of God before me. Then he goes on in verses 7 through 15 to describe uh, 3 through 6, but 7 through 15 describe past interventions. And there's so much Old Testament woven into this section. Another good application for us. Do you know your Bible? Do you know the God of the Bible? Does the God of the Bible and the things that you know from the Bible fill your praise? Shape your thinking? Come out your mouth when you're wrestling with God? That's what he does. He says, wait a minute, I'm going to remember what you did when you came down and stood on Mount Sinai and everything shook. I'm going to remember what you did when the people of Israel came into the land of Canaan and you used all kinds of means. You used earthquakes and rain and thunderstorms and hail and wind and plagues to defeat your enemies. You even made the sun stand still. That's the God I'm coming to right now as I think about the way the world is. And as I cry for mercy, this is the, the God that I'm, that I'm coming before and I call to mind. This one who has worked in great ways in the past, and especially the deliverance from Egypt. Teman and Paran are areas down in the south of, of Israel, in the southern wilderness area. The parting of the seas. He says, are you angry with the water? No, he wasn't angry at the sea because it parted. He wasn't angry at the Jordan because it parted. He was delivering his people. And then he defeated Pharaoh. Look with me at, at chapter 3. I hope you have your Bibles open there. But I want to show you something. The phrase that, we, that we're very familiar with is right there in verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy, right? But then notice how that is, is brought out throughout the entire chapter. In, in verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan under distress. The tent curtains of, land, of the land of Midian were trembling. Did Yahweh rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea? That you rode on your horses? 
on your chariots of, what was he, what did he come in? Did he come on war horses? No, he came in chariots of salvation. So you have your wrath and mercy. God's wrath being looked at, people trembling because of it, but God acting in mercy. Verse 12, in indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people and the salvation of your anointed. And that anointed one, I didn't see whether it was plural or singular. That may be a reference to the Messiah. You struck the head of the house of evil, probably a reference to Pharaoh and, and his uh, death of his son and the death of his, of his crack troops in the, in the Red Sea, to lay him open from thigh to neck. So you see here again, indignation and wrath and mercy. He says, I'm looking back at what you've done in the past. And you came in wrath, but you came for salvation. And that's going to leave the prophet. And with this, we'll have to just close. Look with me at, at verses 16 through 19. Because here we have Habakkuk's fearful faith. Habakkuk's fearful faith, beginning at verse 16. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips tingled or quivered. Decay entered my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. You see, he has now embraced what God had told him was going to happen. He says, and I'm just going to stand here on my post and I'm waiting for God to bring the judgment he said would come. And it terrifies me. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no produce on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. What's he describing? The devastation that comes when invasion takes place. Utter destruction. Everything's gone. He's praying for mercy. He's seeing what God has done in the past. He's seeing what God has said he's going to do in judging sin. He sees that judgment on the stage. It's, 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 as it were, on the borders. It's coming. And when it comes, there's going to be nothing. And he says, even if they wipe out everything, yet I will exult in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength. And he has set my feet like hind's feet and makes me tread on high places. When you think of judgment, and we think, oh, good, they're going to get what they deserve. Sometimes when those worldly judgments come, the righteous suffer too. Habakkuk was going to have to suffer when the Babylonians came in if he was still alive. And all of the righteous people were going to have to suffer as they came through and swept everything away. But the righteous will live by faith, which produces a faithful life. 
even in utter devastation. And beyond that, he's not just saying, I'll make it. He's saying, I'm going to praise my way all the way through it. Because I am going to praise this God, Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, the God of salvation. He will deliver me. He is my strength. He is my rock. He will make my feet to stand, however bad it gets. And I can't help but think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. days before he was to be set free. Dying. He was set free. We will be set free because the God of our salvation will not forget us. In the midst of utter distress, let's be honest about our fear. In the midst of utter devastation, let's be honest about expectation. What should we expect? God's going to come in judgment. And in the end, may we manifest utter confidence in our God and express honest joy that our God is the God of our salvation, our strength in everything. May we learn from Habakkuk. Brethren, we live in similar times. No, no, they're not coming with guns and swords and they're not yet coming to destroy us and kill us. Uh, Russia hasn't come to our borders yet. Uh, China's just flying its balloons over us. It hasn't come onto our land yet. Islam hasn't overtaken us yet. We don't know what the Lord's going to do. But he could come and he could bring utter devastation. What will you do? Let us be like Habakkuk and wrestle with our God. Pour out our complaints and concerns and questions to him. Let us be like Habakkuk and have that faith that even in utter devastation and even while we tremble, that we would have complete confidence in our God. Let's pray. God in heaven, help us to learn from this wonderful book that you've given us. Help us, oh God, to wrestle with you about these things and not to turn from you. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us from the book of Habakkuk and that you would even be with us throughout the rest of this day. Lord, we thank you that we're not in the, the circumstances that Habakkuk was in. We don't see the enemy at the corner ready to destroy us. And so we have the privilege of gathering once again. Lord, fill us with the joy and delight of our privilege to sit in this place and sing your praises and hear your word and be fed by your servant from your word that we might be pleasing to you, to strengthen our faith, that we would be those righteous who live by faith. We plead in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.